What does digital advice mean to advisory firms that are trying to grow and improve client service? If the transition to digital wealth is a baseball game, what inning are we in right now? And is digital advice only good for low complexity clients or can everyone use it? All this and more on this digital advice episode of Wealth Management Today. This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. Broker-dealers are under tremendous pressure to retain and attract new advisors, and the technology ecosystem is a key part. Ezra Group Consulting is your go-to source for building the next generation of advisor and client experiences that will supercharge your firm's growth, increase user satisfaction, and reduce operating costs. If you're a broker-dealer and you want to leapfrog your competition, contact Ezra Group today for a free one-hour consultation and 10% off your first strategic planning project. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P.co for more information. Welcome to the wonderful world of wealth tech. I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, and I'm a strategy and business consultant to banks, broker-dealers, asset managers, and fintech firms, all in the wealth management space. And I'm bringing to you this Wealth Management Today podcast to share innovations, trends, and ideas about the industry and things that I find interesting. Today's guest is someone I've known for quite some time. Uh, Randy Bullard and I go way back, longer than either one of us cares to remember. And we've been looking forward to this episode for a while. Uh, Randy and I uh, worked out what we're talking about, all about digital wealth, and we cover a wide range of topics from wealth complexity to understanding changes in digital wealth and uh, things like Vanguard PAS and personal capital. We really cover a lot, of, a lot of ground. So I think you really enjoy this episode. So let's get started. I'd like to welcome to this episode of the podcast, Randy Bullard. Randy is general manager of wealth management for SIGFIG, which is a provider of digital wealth solutions. Randy, welcome. Thank you very much, Craig. Great to be talking with you today about all things digital wealth. And it's great for you to be here. I know we, we talk a lot. We've known each other for uh, longer than I want I care to admit. Uh, <laughs> so I'm true. glad you are available to get on the podcast and for us to have this discussion. Yeah, it's exciting. So where I'm excited. Whew. I got I to calm down. We're too excited. Okay. <laughs> the, um, so we're talking digital advice trends. Um, yeah. And I know we, we were bouncing some ideas around before, and so we, we've got a list of things to talk about. So I thought we would start sort of at the beginning a bit and then ramp up right into it really quickly. So what do you think digital advice means? It's a broad term, and it's funny. If you Google digital advice, because uh, I do this a lot, I try to stay up on all the trends, and you get all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, the the term is used ex extensively in the mortgage industry. It's used extensively, particularly overseas, a little more expansively. But I really think of digital advice as applying digital technology to evolve and change how it is that consumers receive wealth management service. You know, 15 years ago, 100% of that was done by human financial advisors of one form or another. And you and I know there's a lot of different channels, different kinds of financial advisors, different legal and regulatory structures. But increasingly, the last few years, you know, uh, with robo-advice, but now kind of all kinds of, you know, iterations on hybrid advice models, there's a lot of different flavors. And uh, I consider all those to be, you know, kind of forms of digital wealth, digital advice. 
True. Yeah, it, it, it does start to morph and change over times. When we're talking digital advice, a lot of firms are seeing it as, a, 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 as an accelerator of growth and, and for client service. So with firms looking to grow and the, the, the competition and there's a lot of stress on these firms on how they're going to keep growing, how is digital advice playing a part and how is that related to advisor movement and how firms are thinking about building their platforms? The digital wealth programs that we, you know, kind of engage in and, and kind of, you know, have a lot of dialogue with big financial institutions about, it's all about growth, but it, it comes in a lot of different flavors. You know, a lot of firms, for example, retail banks that have got large, you know, bases of depository client assets, it's about how can they turn those from bank-only relationships to banking and wealth relationships. And so for them, it's growth of, you know, cross-selling customers into, into wealth. When you're talking about FAs, you know, digital wealth is generally around increasing wallet share. So using account aggregation and analytics and, and, and you know, planning services to effectively, you know, create arguments or sales opportunities to pull in outside assets. And then net new, you know, how, you know, most advisors have grown their practice through, you know, belly to belly selling, asking for referrals, you know, it, it's, you know, it's, it's hand to hand combat, one client to the next. And, and really it's pretty slow. If you look at a typical FA, they add, you know, one, two, three new relationships a year, just enough to kind of keep up with uh, loss. But digital, you know, once an advisor figures out how to do it, and most still haven't, but some have, uh, but once, a, once an advisor figures out how to bring on a net new client digitally, and that they've got a new digital funnel, a new way to bring in clients other than meeting them at a Starbucks or meeting them in their office, then it, you know, it becomes in a, a net new customer uh, channel. And then for big institutions, you know, increasingly they're trying to figure out how do they increasingly service more and more of their customers directly and affiliate the service delivery with the brand rather than with the named human financial advisor. And so that has them kind of shifting budget and resourcing away from advisor recruiting and towards digital channels and development. It also has a lot of firms figuring out how do they invest in and stand up uh, call center and hybrid-based advice models and, and you know, start to innovate in areas other than you know, the rat race of recruiting, retaining, hiring financial advisors and the expenses associated with that. Now, hold on, you're jumping ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Jump ahead to the call center. That's All right. The question that's going to be coming later. All right. Let's, let's say with, with the firm growth. So, yep. so you, you mentioned a couple of things. I'm trying to unpack it. Talk about advisor movement that firms yep. in the past felt that their their growth was very dependent linearly on advisor recruiting. Yeah. But how does so so digital obviously gives them another channel where it's not a one-to-one relationship between advisors and clients. Today, you know, yesterday, 99, you know, percent of, of advice was delivered by uh, human financial advisors. And and you know, it's not going to be a fast. Uh, trend away from that, but it is a one-way trend. More and more service will be delivered directly by firms through digital and hybrid channels. So the energy that has historically gone into uh, advisor recruiting, I think, is going to be you know, going down. I think some of the exorbitant payouts that uh, have been used to you know, have advisors move from firm to firm I think that trend is gonna is gonna wane. Uh, the independent RIA model is uh, uh, growing and strong and only getting stronger. 
Um, but but I don't, you know, I don't think the battle for advisors, if you will, um, is is going to be kind of uh, the future growth focus for most firms. It's going to be delivering uh, increasing digital capabilities and being able to service clients without having to necessarily compete for advisor recruiting. When you're marketing a digital advice channel, aren't you going up against Vanguard and Personal Capital and Betterment and Wealthfront and every yeah. other digital vendor? Yeah. Yeah, you are. And so that strategy only plays well for firms that actually have a retail brand, uh, for firms that don't have a retail brand and aren't inclined to be a retail brand. If they're more of a, a brand to the industry, a brand to a financial advisor, then yeah, that, you know, that's, a, that's a pretty big uh, switch for those firms. But some of our partners uh, that we work with, um, you know, they've got very explicit strategies for wanting to see more and more a growing percentage of their clients being directly serviced by, you know, the brand and the uh, the organization. Is that because they can, the, the advisor becomes less important and they can swap advisors if they need to or? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, I mean, it, listen, it's driven both directions. One is consumers more and more want to consume the service digitally, period. Uh, digital adoption is a one-way thing in all markets. You know, people don't install Uber, try it, and then delete it and say, I'm going to go back to hailing cabs. That doesn't happen. Digital adoption is one way, and people see that. And so putting in place a digital uh, wealth solution uh, that allows the consumer to choose how they want to consume the advice, whether it's all digital whether it's all human, whether it's some hybrid approach, whether it's a personalized advisor or a non-personalized advisor through some, you know, organization um, or, you know, firms that are whose mission is to provide wealth management service to consumers. If that is their mission, then um, then they're going to effectively orient their digital strategy around that consumer rather than being all about we need to build a platform for advisors so that we can recruit advisors because that's the only way we get consumers. That was the mindset of as recently as five or eight years ago, and it's not the mindset of real leading you know, growth-oriented wealth management firms now. One other thing you mentioned, which I thought was interesting, was how advisors' understanding of what digital advice means is changing. You said some advisors think that Data aggregation is digital advice, and I don't think of it that way. I think of data aggregation as, as augmenting. Yeah, uh, you, you can be an augmentation of human advice. It's on the portal. It's or it's it's something you use to gather assets or, or have more of a holistic conversation. But then once they see how digital advice works, then it turns into a net new trust, a net new customer channel for them. Yeah, it can. Uh, you know, different firms and different advisors are using it in in different ways. I, one of our partners, their you know the the anchor of their business case was using account aggregation and a function we call guidance, which is effectively an analytic on those outside assets, uh, as a means for an advisor and the platform to provide value to the consumer around, hey, you said that you want to be diversified in this way. You said this was your risk tolerance. But when I look at your assets held away, I see something other than that. And, and, and so it effectively becomes, you know, a, a, a sales tool uh, and a wallet share increase mechanism primarily aimed at existing customers performing that kind of analytic on outside assets. So it's, it's one tool. 
But, you know, for one of our partners, that was a big part of their business case is a belief that they have approximately one third wallet share. And by putting clients through that type of process, they could, you know, uh, almost double wallet share. Um, so that's an experiment that's in process. But, you know, that was their strategy. We've had another partner that it was about net new clients that advisors don't didn't have historically a way to digitally onboard a customer that, that the client acquisition model was, you know, face-to-face -face selling and a paper-based account opening process. And that if they could effectively have a purely digital onboarding process, if they could, you know, onboard a client with nothing more than an email address uh, and have a much broader reach, a way to digitally engage clients and bring them into a funnel, that there was a whole new way that they could grow net new clients. So that's, you know, that's another strategy. Has your guidance product shown results? It has. Yeah, it's it's relatively early days, but that one partner program uh, has done quite well and is uh, got, you know, kind of really nice growing uh, month over month uh, sales. And uh, yeah, and, and so it's doing and, and they that particular partner, uh, they lead with the account aggregation and guidance analytics. So it's a relatively high bar it, to, to come into that process there. The, the very first thing they ask of a client is, link your outside accounts so we can give you an analytic on that and help you make good decisions around those outside assets. And so it's a relatively, you know, that's, that's a kind of a complex uh, initial interaction with a, uh, you know, a customer, but by doing it that way, they also then get really good, you know, if the client engages in that process, they get really good follow through, really good account closure rates or opening rates, I should say. So speaking of client engagement, what's I'm seeing some reports of that client uptake of digital advice offerings is still slow. Yeah, I think, you know, listen, I think we're in, you know, kind of maybe the third inning of the transition into digital wealth. And the first inning was a bunch of firms building standalone robos and launching them. Um, and just, you know, kind of with a little bit of a, if we build it, they will come, you know, mentality. And I don't think any of those have done, you know, very well doesn't mean that they've done horribly, but I think everybody builds business cases on rosy adoption curves that just haven't, you know, played out. And, and so the second inning has been about, you know, firms trying to figure out, okay, I do have producing wealth channels. I have financial advisors. I have, you know, customers walking into branches. I have, you know, I have an existing business. How do I, rather than look at digital as a new channel, I look at digital as an enabling growth capability to help improve all of my existing channels. And that means different things in different channels for different customers and different advisor types. And so that's, that's where all of the energy in the market is. And, and I think that's much more logical. Don't think of digital as a channel. Think of digital as simply an enabling technology that takes a lot of different forms depending on the customer type and the advisor type that you're talking about. It's a tech-enabled advice delivery. But yeah. Haven't we always had that? We have. And so from that standpoint, you can say there's really, frankly, nothing that new about digital. What is new, I think, is the consumer. Um, we've always had technology, but it's always been technology that's been in the hands of an FA for doing what an FA does a little bit better. The difference here is now the consumer is directly consuming all kinds of services, wealth just being one of them, all kinds of services directly digitally. And, and, and so, you know, now wealth is a much higher consideration purchase and much higher consideration engagement than, you know, getting, hailing a car or ordering a burger. So uh, it's not going to have the same type of, you know, adoption mechanics as, 
well, but it's happening really fast. And so that's the main difference is now the consumers are engaging. Digital no longer is about making advisors more effective. It's about how do you directly engage the consumer in the time, place, and fashion that they prefer. Uh, and then what's the changing, evolving role of both the human financial advisor as well as the provisioning institution, you know, in, in, in engaging the customer that way. So another good lead. And so we just talked about client uptake. What about getting, getting full service advisors to adopt digital advice? Yeah, so we're, we've got, you know, one of our partners right now, um, that's, you know, exactly what we're doing, actually two of our partners right now, we've got a full service advisor, you know, kind of digital rollouts uh, in process. And, um, you know, it's interesting, because uh, some of them are some of the advisors that I'm talking about are, you know, you know, true high end, high net worth, full service, you know, traditional advisors, others are more kind of a, a retail uh, branch type advisor, different profiles, different client segments. And so digital means a little bit different thing to those types of advisors. Uh, for a, a ultra high net worth kind of full service advisor, digital is either kind of an engagement model that they can use for all their customers. Some firms are looking at it as, hey, it's a small account solution. So take all your sub X say 500,000 or $250,000 customers and digitize those relationships as a way to get efficiency and improve client service. Uh, others aren't looking at it that way. Others are, no, 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 it's a, it's a way to engage all of my clients digitally. And even within individual firms, different advisors are thinking about it differently. Some are very, you know, forward thinking and, hey, if my clients are wanting digital, then I need to, you know, be integrating digital into how I service them. I think in the retail branch world where you've had, let's say, traditional bank advisors, there's a huge opportunity for uh, digital to really kind of fully automate uh, and eliminate paper and uh, uh, processing steps associated with taking a client from they're walking in the front door of a branch to their a client with an invested account and do that real time in a very consumer friendly way digitally that, you know, that's a huge improvement over kind of traditional managed account processes. It should be. Yeah. Considering how clunky traditional managed account processes always have been. Right. Yeah. You and I would know that well. <laughs> Quite well. But one thing we don't see much in digital advice are managed accounts. It's usually bunches of ETFs or some sort of beta, smart beta uh, index. When will we see more managed accounts in digital advice? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a, a little bit semantic. I mean, those are, at the end of the day, almost all the digital advice programs are papered into discretionary managed accounts. They just happen to be a managed account of low-cost ETFs in a relatively stable, you know, strategic allocation. But I think that's just a sign of, frankly, that's kind of where uh, the market has, you know, uh, gone as um, kind of the default mass affluent wealth management solution. Um, you know, SigFig, as an example, we could implement active strategies. We could implement mixed mutual fund ETF portfolios. We could, we could even, I'm sure, implement a UMA architecture if that's what somebody really wanted. Uh, but I, I think, you know, just a lot of the market, uh, love it or hate it, has kind of come to the conclusion that direct-to-consumer digital pairs best with low-cost, uh, strategic asset allocations. Um, we do have some of the programs that we're operating where uh, using our co-pilot platform, firms want to implement 
you know, mixed uh, strategies. We've got a firm that wants us to implement a, on top of their strategic asset allocations and ESG SRI tier of models. So you, you know, kind of profile the client through discovery if they're environmentally inclined, and then that would channel them into that, you know, tier of models. So I think there's, there's certainly going to be more innovation as digital, you know, kind of permeates more use cases and more advisor types. But um, I don't, I don't think you're likely to see the complexity of, uh, you know, I think so many of the, the managed account platforms that you and I spent years, you know, consulting to and innovating in. Um, I feel like the industry's migrated to a more uh, simple uh, solution architecture as a default, and that's probably uh, a good thing. Could be. So do you, do you, you are not seeing any call from your clients for UMA structures? I wouldn't say that we're not seeing any demand for that. We've got, uh, in fact, I'd say almost the opposite. Everybody asks about it. But when it comes down to, okay, you know, let's talk about what advisors are going to use this, what customers are going to use this, what do you want your advisors doing in, you know, a digital relation, in a digital wealth relationship. You know, most firms kind of view uh, advisors picking products and creating custom configurations as something that is going to be increasingly isolated to high net worth and ultra high net worth clients that have higher degrees of wealth complexity. And that for clients that have got relatively low wealth complexity, and what I mean by that is they don't have outside holdings uh, that substantially impact how their investable assets should be invested. They don't have outside taxable gains to, uh, to offset or shelter um, other things. It's basically somebody with mostly liquid investable assets for that client profile they don't want to use, they don't want advisors picking products and creating custom allocations and operating in a flexible UMA architecture. They want advisors and clients to be going into solutions that are constructed based on a guided consulting process into some kind of model. And, um, and that, it, that, you know, while, so while firms want to have a UMA, it's usually to focus on higher net worth, higher wealth complexity, and their preference is to channel their digital strategies into more streamlined, bucketed solutions based on client, uh, you know, risk return profile and needs assessment. Hmm. So we, we get asked about it, but we, we, we have yet to really get down to the point where a firm says, yes, I want you to implement a complex flexible UMA architecture within a digital wealth solution. Usually when you really get down through kind of a discovery process, that's not what they need or want. They, they tend to, to gravitate towards simpler models based on, you know, where they're aiming in the market. So how about SMAs? Is anyone asking just for a standalone SMA strategy? No, no. We have the dialogue all the time, but usually that kind of falls into uh, uh, the same UMA bucket. It, you know, where are you going to use a single asset class, you know, active SMA strategy. Well, usually you're going to pair it with other strategies or usually you're going to use it if the client has external holdings that give them their exposures and other asset classes. And again, all of those things mean higher wealth complexity. And so rather than trying to systematize any of that through a digital wealth platform, they kind of carve that off. They say that's, that's where our FAs use our existing SMA, UMA platform but for all clients with, you know, again, lower wealth complexity, you know, a, a million and a half dollar portfolio of liquid assets 
We need to implement an asset allocation-based strategy here. There's no reason to go off into SMA product land. You know, better to put a client into a diversified solution. And it doesn't, I'm not being prescriptive. And, you know, all of our partners have got different strategies. Um, we don't care whether it's ETFs or mutual funds. I don't care. I'm, I'm long past the point in my career where I have strong opinions around uh, product preferences. I just see on balance, you know, I talk to dozens and dozens of firms all the time about their digital wealth strategies. And I'm not seeing firms really having much interest to put SMA or UMA type strategies in their digital wealth platforms. So if they're not doing that, are they doing more alternatives? Some. You know, I, I think the industry is still anchoring on strategic asset allocations of ETFs. I think that's the anchor solution architecture that most digital wealth platforms are going to use. They'll use their own unique capital market assumptions. They may have their preferences around ETF provider X versus Y. Uh, but for the most part, they, they, you know, they tend to anchor there. We do see a lot of, you know, interest in smart beta. We do see a lot of interest in using traditional uh, mutual funds for exposures, you know, emerging market exposures, niche exposures where an active play is better or where the ETF universe is thin. We do have firms that are very interested in implementing particularly uh, SRI, ESG-based uh, programs. Uh, so not having kind of necessarily ESG, SRI products, but having entire allocations or entire programs that are designed ground up for consumers that are, you know, concerned about, you know, uh, whatever the, you know, the, the specific issues are, uh, a lot of energy around that. Um, I think the energy may be a little bit ahead of actual demand, but I still see we, we get a lot of interest from asset managers and sponsors that want to potentially spin up ESG, SRI-oriented digital wealth solutions. I think there is a lot of interest around smart beta and around uh, alternatives and kind of trying to innovate around what goes into the asset allocation, but less innovation and interest around implementing kind of complex, you know, UMA architectures or individual equity separate accounts. Right. What about when a firm is bringing in digital advice and implementing it, how should they best integrate it with the rest of their infrastructure? Boy, that's a million dollar question. Um, and it's, it's got a very, you know, an extremely varied answer. You know, we, we work with some firms. I see a lot of firms that they don't have a big in-house platform. So they outsource to InvestNet or some other TAMP or they componentize it out. And so for them, you know, our co-pilot platform is a full stack managed account solution that just happens to be digital. Um, so it digitizes everything, but at the end of the day, it allows an advisor to profile a client and have access to a, you know, a broad array of uh, solutions that they can then digitally onboard a client into. So for them, we provide a full stack, you know, everything integrated into whatever their custodian is. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, we've got partners who they've got a very robust fee-based platform and they've either built that themselves or they've outsourced components of it to fill in the blank vendors, you know, Vestmark or Fiserv or Orion's in there or InvestNet or whatever. Uh, but but they, ha they don't have what they would consider to be a robust digital solution. It's more of a legacy, you know, SMA, UMA, fund wrap, rep as advisor, rep as PM solution architecture. And they're trying to figure out you know, how do they integrate digital into that? And that's a very complicated set of variables to solve for. It really depends on what the corporate objectives are. But we, you know, we get involved in, in those uh, conversations, you know, every single day. 
The Invest in Others Charitable Foundation is a nonprofit that recognizes financial advisors for their exceptional charitable work. This year, over 500 advisors have been nominated for the chance to receive up to $50,000 for their charity. The winners will be announced at the Invest in Others Gala that will be held on Thursday, September 26, 2019 at the Western Boston Waterfront Hotel. I was there at the gala last year and I was really blown away when I watched the videos of the top advisors and seeing their impact on their associated charities. With almost 100 sponsor firms and close to 700 industry professionals attending, the Invest in Others Gala is a fantastic opportunity for your organization to support an exceptional cause while also taking the opportunity to network with current and prospective clients. For more information on how you or your firm can participate, please go to the Invest in Others website at investinothers.org forward slash sponsor. I'll also include a link to it in the show notes for all of you, and I encourage you to click on it and read the instructions and participate if you can. It's really a wonderful cause. So how does the advisor work with that? So let's say you're, they've got Fiserv yeah. uh, and as their main platform, and they're bringing uh, SigFig in for digital. How would you integrate? How would you make the advisor experience unified with, are they going back and forth from one screen to another? Is it, are you just pulling the custodial files? So you're, you're you know, whatever accounts you open, get mirrored uh, back or you know, how does it work? We generally integrate directly into, you know, the backend custody and trading platforms of our partner organization. If they have an inter- intermediary portfolio accounting system, such as a Pfizer or a Vestmark, we could integrate there. Generally, we integrate direct into the custodian and then those systems would independently integrate directly into the custodian and be used for billing, uh, potentially performance reporting. If there's a client portal, very often those are going to be powered by those platforms. So usually what we end up doing is creating a kind of a new digital wealth platform that sits beside the existing managed accounts platforms and is used by specific advisor types and client types for a digital first relationship. That's not necessarily optimal if a firm's got big scale and an existing managed account solution. You know, the obvious question is, well, can't you, can't you layer digital over that and, and just, you know, use digital to uh, service accounts and open accounts and deal with accounts that are in the existing managed accounts platform? Uh, and yes, we could do that. Uh, we haven't built any of those types of programs to date. Um, but there's kind of really active, you know, ongoing dialogue. Uh, but to date, all of the programs that we built have been, let's say, full stack, you know, digital wealth programs where SigFig's delivering pretty much an end-to-end solution integrated into the custodian system all the way up to, you know, kind of the advisor portal and the, uh, the client customer portal. That's great. It's nice to have that. So when you say full stack, what do you mean by that? I mean that we, you know, and again, I don't want to get into an advertisement for SigFig, but just, you know, how we integrate, we are directly integrated into the custodian. Uh, we're directly integrated into the partner's uh, online client portal for single sign-on and, and platform access. We're directly integrated into the partner's advisor, internal advisor portals and dashboard. And, uh, and then we directly deliver to both the advisor and the uh, retail investor, kind of the digital interface via either their, you know, dot com retail west website or an advisor portal or a tablet form factor or a web app 
all of those are, are things that we support. And so we delivered the full thing. We're not dependent on them having a managed accounts platform that we sit on top of or them having uh, a CRM that we have to integrate to. We deliver all of those components. And then to the degree that a partner doesn't want all of those components, they want us to you know, back off of some of that and integrate to you know, existing systems, then, then we do that. But we have a full stack capability. Is SigFig also a TAMP? We, we don't lead as a TAMP. We don't hold ourselves out as a TAMP. But when you look at all the things that we do, yeah, we're a TAMP. We, what, we, what we don't have that a TAMP typically does is a predefined solution architecture and manager research selection and due diligence that covers that solution architecture. So we work, the models that we implement through the various programs we operate are mostly provided by the in-house uh, uh, research organization. We also work with you know, uh, models from leading third-party providers, many of the uh, active uh, ETF strategists, several of the uh, large ETF issuers have got their own models. And so we've implemented their model architectures through our digital wealth platform and we're you know, totally flexible and open architecture. But we don't have a function within our four walls that is doing research and due diligence and making our own choices around uh, use these models versus these models, these managers versus these managers. So that's a, you know, kind of one TAMP component. We don't have a, let's call it a pre-configured product offering that we go in with. So, you know, kind of missing that TAMP component. But beyond that, you know, we, we really cover all the core things that a TAMP does. Back to some trends. Are you seeing more of a trend? I know I'm seeing something with asset managers delivering more technology direct to advisors. And does that constitute digital advice or is it something else? Oh gosh, yes, I see that trend. I see it tons. I do wonder how long-term effective it will be. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in that specific market is very defensive in nature. I think, you know, active asset managers are realizing that the FA inter intermediaries and home office intermediaries they've historically distributed to, the shelves are getting narrower and narrower. Um, fee compression is a real thing. Uh, competition is brutal. Trends are away from active in general towards passive. And so asset managers are kind of trying whatever they can to regain kind of a growth lever and advantage. And, and so all of them figure, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll digitally deliver my product. I'll deliver technology. I'll deliver practice management services. And very often I'll try to figure out, is there a way that I can go direct? And so we are constantly in active dialogue with a bunch of different asset managers that are trying to, you know, kind of replicate the, you know, the Vanguard success uh, around, you know, kind of direct digital distribution. I, I, I've not seen a lot of what I would call success there, but all of those firms are trying to figure it out. Do all asset managers become TAMPs at some point where they, they build out a platform? Do do they try to become? You know, I, I I don't. I think the the opportunity for an asset manager to become a TAMP is really hard. I think up, the uphill on that is really really steep because I don't think advisors want to necessarily buy a technology solution from an asset manager or or even get a free technology solution from an asset manager. It it I. I I get why an asset manager would try to do it. And I certainly see, you know, firms that have, you know, moved in that direction. Uh, I just don't, I, I've not seen it be successful yet. And I can see a lot of reasons why it, it may not be successful. 
Yeah, some of them are just investing, like look at BlackRock investing in InvestNet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that deal in particular, I think is, is interesting. And, and really, I think, you know, the future advisor, you know, body of technology has been, you know, somewhat subsumed into what's going on in, 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 in Latin, which is obviously a very compelling technology. You know, BlackRock is unique in how they have been able to translate their success in asset management into technology services. I don't know that most asset managers have got the acumen or resources to, you know, to, to replicate that kind of uh, transition. Yeah, there's only there's only a few companies that are that that size and have right. that that type of brand recognition and that type of wallet. Yeah, right. We're seeing a lot of interest in standing up what you call non-personalized call center advice organizations, which I yeah. would just call hybrid. Yeah, a call center, some sort of hybrid call center where you've got uh, you know, advisors like a personal capital or a Vanguard. Are you seeing that trend and how is that going to change the way? Yeah, I I think this is a a huge trend and it's, it's a trend that the industry doesn't really kind of talk about or promote that visibly because, you know, we're still an industry driven by human financial advisors predominantly, and that's going to stay for a while. And so when firms, firms aren't going to lead with, Hey, we're investing in call center because a, it sounds mass marketing and it's alienating to their financial advisors. And so making press about it is not, you know, good for, for that side of the business. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's a, a huge strategic shift in the industry. Every firm is investing in uh, their call centers. And, and as they build up their call center advice organizations uh, and they build expertise, they get higher skilled FAs that understand how to digitally engage customers and deliver quality advice over the phone. They're increasing in the breadth of services that can deliver that way. And as they, as that machine gets mature, then all of a sudden, you know, you get an FA team and the FA is retiring. And it used to be that you would try to, you know, kind of have a, a team led transition, or you would break up that book of business and try to move it to other FAs or, or, or now, you know, you have an ability to say, well, let's, take that book of business, let's split it in half and the half that ought to be directly serviced digitally through a call center, that's where they go. And then the other half that have higher touch services, they're going to go, you know, to other FAs. And so it, it really starts to, you know, standing up a call center and getting it well developed gives firms strategic options around growth and dealing with FAs and dealing with clients that they don't have otherwise. For me, it's a super exciting part of the market. And uh, we've really tailored a couple of our solutions to be effectively call center-based wealth platforms. And we've developed a bunch of call center-facing uh, integration technologies. And, um, and, and it's really interesting also to see how different firms are then taking that and how do they make it, rather than be competitive against a traditional full-service advisor, how do you make it an extension of the traditional full-service advice team? Uh, and how do you integrate call center services and support with you know, a, a field advisor? And we see a lot of different you know, innovative things uh, happening there and, and uh, you know, kind of so cool stuff. Do you have an example of an innovative, interesting thing happening? I, I, I'll put you on the spot. Yeah, I, I, you know, if I did give you one, it would be very specific to one of our partners, and I don't want people to uh, back into that. You know, we I names have been changed to protect. The well, industry. if I get too much detail, though, even changing the name doesn't hide much. So, 
So are we talking more about like a Merrill Edge type of sure where accounts below a certain value get moved to the call center? Yeah, but 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 you know, accounts maybe accounts below a certain value get moved to a call center. Maybe accounts between some other range of values can either be in the call center or in the field advisor's book of business, but they should be in the digital solution. And of course, if they're in the digital solution and it's a common digital solution between the field and the FA, then the firm and the FA have got a lot of flexibility on how and when is that client serviced, whether they're serviced by the FA in the field or a call center if it's after hours or, or, or. And it could be that it goes either direction. It could be that a client goes into a a call center type support model, but say you go through the guidance analytic I was talking about earlier and you identify some opportunities and all of a sudden the client goes from being a half million dollar client to a million and a half client, then maybe you refer that client back out to the field FA. And the digital platform effectively facilitates all of that. It effectively lubricates the movement of the uh, uh, client from, uh, you know, the optimal organization to optimal organization. It also uh, supports evolution of the service offering, uh, the addition of products, the ongoing engagement and identification of those outside assets to bring over. Um, So it really, you know, the digital platform becomes kind of the common infra that, both the call center and the field organization can kind of collaborate on in delivering advice to a broad set of advisor pro or client profiles. Which is helpful. If you can yeah. get a broader set of client profiles you can cover, the broader your client base can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what about product service integration beyond wealth? Yeah, so that's an area where we're putting a lot of energy, you know, a lot of SigFig's customers are retail banks. So they're, you know, banks that, you know, first and foremost, have got a retail branch footprint, they've got FAs in those branches, in some operating model, uh, licensed in some way, you know, they've, they've got a way of serving clients with wealth. They've also got bankers, retail bankers in all of those branches. And so how do you kind of use digital to do better upfront discovery uh, with you know new clients and existing clients across all products and services that the organization offers, and so we launched. You might have seen it. We had a press release a few weeks ago on our Atlas product. Um, it's a it's a tool for doing in branch client discovery and triaging uh, and identifying uh, both who is the optimal set of bankers and specialists that that advisor should or that client should meet with based on the discovery information, and also what's the optimal product offering, and it spans all products. So checking, saving, mortgage, uh, loans, uh, small business, credit, and investments. And, and so, you know, how do you uh, really identify those opportunities and get the best fit with the client while they're still physically in the branch? And that's what, you know, that product does. And, and then the, the discovery components, the banking product discovery components, can be lifted out and delivered via uh, web or tablet by a wealth advisor. So we've got some of our organizations where they've got a full banking product suite, but their full service wealth advisors aren't very good at selling checking or savings or credit cards. They have access to the products. They're just not very, they're historically wealth advisors. And so you can go the other direction. How do you effectively give that advisor a tool that allows them to identify opportunities and, and cross-sell the broader kind of, you know, financial products, product shelf that the organization has. And then the real new frontier, and you see a lot of innovation in this with some of the other robos, 
is how do you in, truly integrate at a more fundamental level some of those products? How do you have digital wealth in your savings account either sit in the same account or sit in complimentary accounts or use the savings as the sweet vehicle on the investment account? Uh, how do you link a credit card and a debit card to those things and have them all interact well? Um, we've just got tons of innovation, you know, going on with some of our partners. Uh, we've done some original research around uh, what are what are consumer interests, highest interest in some of those areas. So it's definitely a uh, a cool area with a lot of innovation going on. Indeed, I just wrote an article on my blog. I just published it today about Investnet doing that same thing with their building out their insurance exchange and they're building yep. out their, they just announced a lending credit exchange that advisors can now offer loans. I believe they're going to be using Money Guy Pro as their main user user interface for those because mm -hmm. Money Guy Pro has got some very powerful tools for figuring out what insurance you need and they should be able to do the same thing for lending. What kind of loans would you might, would you, would you need and maybe yep. sell mortgages? Who knows? So with Money Guy Pro is a very powerful interface. What other, how do retail banks connect all these tools together so it makes it easy for advisors to cross-sell, understand holistically which, which products are best for their clients? You know, our Atlas product is engineered, you know, specifically to solve that problem. So it's got a very kind of open client discovery questionnaire that we've pre-configured, but different partners are configuring it, you know, adding their own questions. And then, and then it's got a kind of a flexible, open a scoring algorithm on the back end that then maps into the banking product architecture. So it's, you know, it's a, it's pretty much an open architecture, ask any set of questions, go through any kind of scoring logic to arrive at any kind of product recommendations. We also have a goals-based framework that can, it can anchor on. So you can effectively go through a light goals framework through that process. You can map existing assets, either assets on book or assets uh, held away uh, via account aggregation to the goals to look at goal fulfillment. Uh, and ultimately, all of that can feed into the algo for uh, banking product recommendation. So it's, you know, it's similar. We obviously don't own Money Guide Pro like, like uh, InvestNet does. Pro, you know, we, we take a kind of a, an approach of extreme simplification. We really focus on kind of the consumer and consumer engagement, and we do tons of A-B testing of all of our uh, interfaces. So, you know, whereas uh, other platforms, and I, um, I can't speak at all, you know, specifically to the InvestNet platform, maybe try to be exhaustive in their advice. We, we try to be, we want to make sure that a consumer will get through the process that they will understand all the questions being asked, that they will, uh, and that we, we minimize the amount of time and effort. If we can do it in 10 questions rather than 12, that has huge value, where the others would be like, well, 12 is okay. No, the, the drop-off from 10 to 11, and then 11 to 12, we've measured, and we understand that if you can do it in 10, how much better off the consumer and the organization will be. And so we really try to be very deliberate in the construction of all of our digital processes for consumers to really optimize every single interaction. And I think we do that, SIGFIG does that a little better than others where we don't have necessarily the history of uh, wealth management services that, uh, and the breadth of, of service that others have, but our consumer experience uh, tends to be, you know, kind of top of class, you know, best in class um, around all those things. You hit a spot that I think is going to be very interesting moving forward with, with, with asking consumers questions, asking, yeah. asking investors 
questions in order to determine their risk profile, asking them questions in order to determine their, their preferences. And is really that, that the best way to go going forward when we've got big data and we've got millions of transactions and millions of interactions? And can we analyze a consumer's behaviors, actual their actual actions yeah. that would better determine what their risk profile is or what their preferences are, like feed it all into an Amazon recommendation engine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 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 really is, you know, earlier I was talking about our guidance engine. I mean, that is the beginnings of that for us. And we'll be extending our guidance function. Right now, our guidance function is primarily a consumer-oriented analytic where the consumer links their outside assets. We pull in, we do we real-time pull in all those holdings. We've got our own massive data store. Uh, and a whole bunch of uh, you know data feeds that allow us to then score that client's household level portfolio on a whole set of criteria and effectively point out to them things that they should be concerned about based on what we know. If you then take that and you pair that with pretty easy to obtain information around how much does the consumer make, how much the, is the, does the consumer have, uh, how old is the consumer, therefore how close are they to retirement, and what's their net worth, you've got kind of the 90% data. Uh, if you can also then kind of get a little bit around goals, you really can provide, a, a, you know, kind of a, a, a rough out of a financial plan for a consumer uh, without, you know, having to drown them in questions and data entry. And that's really you know, a lot of what we try to do, we've got a massive data sciences team in our San Francisco office, and that's all they do. You know, they're all about data connectivity and leveraging data to provide, you know, automated advice and trying to reduce, frankly, the number of questions and the amount of data that you have to get, you know, directly from the consumer for that purpose. Sure. Because once you ask a question, depending on how you word it, is going to influence the answer. Yeah. And it influences them. That's right. Just the just the fact of asking the question, you know, we look at uh, all of the programs that we operate have got digital funnels and and uh, the digital funnels have got, you know, money. Some of our funnels have got like 20 stages. And, And so we measure drop off and it's amazing to see the drop off. And if you can consolidate stages, if you can eliminate stages, if you can uh, simplify stages, then uh, you increase funnel throughput. It's that simple. Um, and so it's a, a lot of what we do, you know, in our data sciences and consumer insights organization is to, you know, focus on, you know, optimizing all of the experiences for both delivering quality investment advice, but also doing it in a way that maximizes client throughput, you know, to the end of funnel. Data sciences and consumer insights. Yep. That's a big, that sounds like that's a big team. It is. Yeah. We've got a large team that that's all they do. Do you, can you share any insights that they've come up with? Off the top of my head, we ought to, <laughs> I know this is a podcast, we ought to take it offline, but I do have uh, a presentation. I mean, we we took our funding, like we used to have a two-page funding process, you know, phase one, page one, your funding source, identify your funding source, page two, um, uh, fill in the details around that source so that we can then, you know, kind of execute funding. And then we, re- we, we basically rebuilt that process to go from two screens and two actions to one. And it's the same, you're doing the same basic thing, but we just kind of consolidated the step and we uh, increased throughput by like, I don't know, like 30%. 
just little things like that, you know, just kind of constantly reviewing where the drop-off rates, where are clients clicking on screens and interacting with the system, and then moving things around and optimizing the process based on, on what you're seeing. We do so much cool A-B testing on sigfig.com. We do have a direct-to-consumer robo still. We don't promote it. You'll never see a banner ad for it. But it really it gives us complete end-to-end control of a consumer digital wealth experience. And it allows us to A-B test all kinds of stuff. And uh, the insights that come from that, that we're then able to take those learnings to our uh, you know, our large platform partners is really, I think, important and, and has allowed us to, you know, tune uh, some of those platforms to increase uh, throughput and, and, and really add value. Let me shift gears real quick but before, we, uh, before we wrap up on sure. reg- to regulation. How do you feel regulators are going to be responding? Are they going to be coming down harder on digital wealth? Is it, is it going to start? Are they going to ignore it? You know, where do you see the re- regulatory issues coming into play? <laughs> You know, I think, you know, the vast majority of uh, robo digital offerings are, you know, they're offered as, as an investment advisory service, a discretionary investment advisory service. So they're SEC regulated. And, you know, the SEC, I think, really did. They got out the microscope and they did a deep dive on, you know, all the robo advisors in the entire industry in uh, 17. Um, uh, we saw, you know, a couple of enforcement actions. But what we really saw while there were a couple of enforcement actions, the implication of the enforcement actions that there were was broad acceptance and endorsement. Um, You know, the SEC never approves anything. They only disapprove. And so by doing what they did, they implicitly kind of gave, you know, gave the nod to, I think, you know, innovation around uh, robo and digital advice. So, you know, I I think it's a, a space where uh, the regulators are likely to be relatively permissive. uh, And, you know, they'll always be looking for bad actors and bad acts. They'll always be looking to make sure that fiduciary standards are being upheld. But uh, I I think the regulators, for the most part, I would call them friends of digital advice. I think they see this as a trend that will increase uh, the consistency, quality, quality, and access to advice and, uh, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm generally, you know, pretty pro uh, regulatory, you know, in, in the digital advice space. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what ultimately happens around uh, DOL and broader fiduciary uh, adoption and, and to the degree that there is uh, FINRA push to um, uh, broad, you know, uh, universal uh, fiduciary standard, uh, digital stands to win. Digital is a way for any organization to deliver fiduciary advice in a much more controlled regulatory, you know, compliant uh, manner than, you know, individual advisors doing what they do and trying to influence that with guardrails and training. So I think, you know, digital has a lot to gain by increased enforcement and increased regulatory uh, engagement. Uh, I think, I think uh, digital will be the net beneficiary there over time. And on that note, I think we can wrap things up. I really appreciate your time, Randy. I think this was, was a really interesting discussion. Yeah, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. I love the podcast, and I appreciate you taking the time. I'm happy to. I'm glad we got to cover everything we wanted to cover. Thanks so much. You bet. Hey, everyone. It's Craig again. Just a few quick items before we go. 
If you like this episode, please give it a five-star review on iTunes. I would very much appreciate it. And remember to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about on this episode. For more information on wealth management technology, you can read my Wealth Management Today blog at wmtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week.